0: Every day I wake up. The first thing I think: Am I going to be able to talk today? There's been a red card, but for who, Chris Kamara? I don't know, Jeff. Has it? One of Britain's best loved football pundits. It's been a cracking Jeff. You have a yeah. Unbelievable, Jeff. What a cracking game. There's a young black kid thinking that one day I'll play for Middlesbrough and all leads, ambition and dream achieved.
1: The story of your mother I found really difficult to read.
0: It was difficult in those days. Men uh, were physical towards women. I made the mistake of telling my dad on his deathbed that it was wrong. I should have kept it to myself. Why?
1: For someone that has never experienced apraxia, what does it feel like for you in your head?
0: I feel a fraud now in terms of broadcasting.
1: You feel a fraud?
0: Yeah. Mm. Mm. I was going to
1: quit everything. Without further ado, I'm Stephen Bartlett. And this is the diary of a CEO. I hope nobody's listening. But if you are, then please keep this to yourself. Chris, what do I need to know about your earliest years to understand the man that you are today?
0: Whoa, I don't know, really. Um, my childhood is slightly clouded. Um, so I wouldn't change anything because you can't change the course of history. But life was difficult growing up, very difficult. Um, so yeah, uh, I I wouldn't change anything, to be honest.
1: When you say clouded?
0: Well, Good days, bad days. We had uh, terrible racism at the time uh, when I was growing up. I was born in 57 so in the 60s it wasn't good. We were the only black family on our estate so anything happened and the police would come knocking on our door take our dad away and you'd have to get cleared and come home and it, the whole process would start again it's that black family there who were causing all the problems and occasionally uh not all the time my dad were like to bet. so he would on a thursday he when he got paid they got paid in cash then brown envelopes uh would occasionally go to the bookies and so we'd end up you know, struggling for food. So it's clouded in those ways. Um, I'm looking through those clouds now, but, you know, uh, thinking it didn't do me any harm, but it happened,
1: you know. Your your mother and your father's relationship?
0: Uh, Mum was the most loyal wife you could ever have. Absolutely. Even if her uh, and dad. And arguments or fights or whatever, she would vehemently stick up for him, you know, when anybody called him, you know, the N word was vibrant back in those days. And, you know, I hear these stories now that it's impossible to understand uh, racism if you're not black. It's not true. It's totally not true. My mum got called at Endlow, uh throughout, you know, the 60s when I was aware of it. Uh, and she came through it, so she knew exactly what racism was about.
1: Mm. Your father was from Sierra Leone?
0: Yeah.
1: And your mother was from? Middlesbrough. Middlesbrough? Yeah. People don't always think about that. They don't think about how the... in in that context, because my mother's from Nigeria and my dad's Mm. from Coventry. Mm -hmm. So I'm, you know, and what my dad went through as well, because his wife was black, um, is often not spoken about, but often Mm. the, the partner carries the weight and the, the, um, the insults all the same. Mm. I, I was reading through your story about how your mother would also, on Thursdays, she would walk up to 10 miles Mm -hmm. to go and get your dad's pay packet. Yeah. Through fear that he might spend it.
0: Yeah, she had to. So it became a ritual in the end. She would do it all the time. In the end, when we were older as kids, she didn't have to carry us to the uh, workplace, which was. Ten miles away, uh, a round journey, and uh, so she. They ended up. She would walk to meet dad, and they would go off into town together. You know, and that became the
1: norm. Mm. Did your dad ever show the impact or the consequences of the way he was being treated like an outsider in a country where he people were telling him he didn't belong? Uh, to us as kids. Did you ever see the impact of him emotionally? Did it manifest itself in drinking, or was there ever a sign that it was impacting him?
0: Uh, he told us often enough. He'd been involved in fights uh, back then, fist fights, you know, that was the norm. You know, he had to stand up and be counted but he was always the one arrested in those fighting situations. Um, but he he had this thing and he drove it into me and my brother. Don't ever react, you know. I might be reacting, but whatever you do, don't react, you know. Take it on the chin uh, and ride through it. Uh, you'll get through it that way. It's been harder for me, and I'm doing this for you, so yeah, you'll benefit. Mm.
1: And m- money, you know, the other thing that I read that I found I found really difficult to read was the story of your your mother when y- your dad's gambling problems were very difficult. Your mother would, and you didn't have money. Your mother would go around to other houses in the street and knock on the doors and ask for bread or anything
0: or money or that's how it had to be you know if you've got tuesday and wednesday to come uh on a monday and you haven't got food and milk and that until dad gets paid on thursday she'd go and borrow money or milk or bread uh from the neighbors she had to she got turned away more often than not but She persevered. She had to
1: to look after her kids. How did you feel amongst that time? So what age are you at this point? Five, six, seven, eight? Um, Well, yeah, it wasn't all the time, you know. It was
0: occasional. So, yeah, I would say from eight-year-old, I became aware of it more. Uh, I know it's eight because I had to light a coal fire at eight years of age. Can you imagine, you know, I can imagine asking my boys to get wood and paper and matches and then light the paper and then once the wood gets going, put the coal on top at eight years' of age. Yeah, 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 spooky, yeah.
1: You were asked to do that to heat the home?
0: Yeah, uh, they, we didn't have central heating. You had a fire, coal fire. Mm. That was all. Yeah. You had an oven in the back of the house, in the kitchen. So you'd put the gas on to heat the kitchen when it was really cold. Mm. But the main source of heat and the hot water was the fire.
1: Was there was there a lot of love in your home?
0: Uh Yeah, I would say intermittently,
1: yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. You know, when I look back now, um, I wouldn't change anything, even though there are aspects that I'd like to change. Aspects? Uh, Yeah, one or two, one or two things. You know, the thing I don't want to do is is destroy the person who my dad is for my grandkids. But it was difficult in those days, you know. Men uh, were physical towards women. Uh,
1: so, yeah, yeah, uh, difficult, yeah. I sat here not so long ago with Alex Scott, the... the um football presenter, broadcaster. Yeah, I work
0: with Alex at Sky. Yeah,
1: Her book comes out in 10 days' time. And In the book, I was reading about how um, she's never spoken about it before publicly, but she would come home and watch her father beating up her mother constantly.
0: Mm.
1: And the mark that left on her as a young child having to witness that kind of violence in the home. Mm. And it's not really talked about enough. And it's funny, the reason why I bring that up is because she's also grappling with the same um, fear of tarnishing her father's Mm. life.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But it was done. I presume my dad grew up with it. Uh, And so he thought it was okay for him to do it. But like I say, you know, my kids will probably listen to this and, you know, I don't want to say too much on it.
1: Is there a mixture of emotions around it because that's what I observed in Alex as well was there's this like you look at someone in your life whether it's a, a parent or someone you love and you say that behavior was wrong but at the same time I I love you you're mm. still my father and it's you know that that balancing act of like should I hate this person should you know it's a like,
0: mm. yeah I made the mistake of Telling my dad on my death on his deathbed uh, that it was wrong, and he he like wouldn't accept that he'd done what he'd done. So, you
1: know, mm. why does that make you emotional? Well,
0: I'm, I should have kept it to myself. Why wait until he's nearly dead to say something? I'm a grown man in this time.
1: Your mother? Mm. Yes. That's a smile on your face. Yeah, of course. Um, what role has she played in making you the man you are today? Um,
0: she was everything you could want in a mum. Uh, she would do anything for me um she did my dad never saw my school report from the age of five until I left school at 16 Uh she protected me that way uh, so yeah uh but not only that you know mums are great and she looked after the family um as good as she possibly could and
1: you know she was my world hmm. and at that age what, what was your what were your dreams if I'd ask you the question what do you want to be when you grow up
0: yeah footballer yeah no danger playing for Middlesbrough initially and then when I saw Leeds on back of the day round there May House Borough or Leeds ambition to play for Borough, dream to play for Leeds. So footballer, nothing else, tunnel vision, yeah.
1: Why football? What was it doing for you?
0: Oh, everything, yeah. I used to play on the field near our house with, again, scrum men from the age of 12 and I wasn't bad, you know. And they would try to kick lumps out of this little kid who was embarrassing them. so yeah, it stood me in good stead, you know when I played against
1: men at sixteen, I couldn't look after myself eventually you um you end up going and doing a couple of months in the uh, the army, yeah uh, how did the that happen? navy, the navy
0: sorry. yeah no um. Uh, Dave Richardson, who was our uh, coach at Middlesbrough Boys, came round my house and said to my dad, uh, there's a chance, not guaranteed, that uh, Chris will be taken on uh, as an apprentice at Middlesbrough. And he went, no, no, he's not going. Uh, If he stays in Middlesbrough, um, he'll become... Uh, he'll be in trouble with the police. Uh, he'll end up drinking and stuff like that. He's not staying in Middlesbrough. He's going in the Navy. He made my brother join the Army and he made me join the Navy. Literally, frog-marched me down to the recruitment office and sign on the dotted line. Can you imagine, you know, well, I can't imagine doing that to my kids, you know. And in a way, I think that worked against me with my kids because I never pressurised my kids to do anything at all, you know, let them do whatever they wanted, whereas I probably could have been a, you know, a little bit more in terms of football or, you know... but I want whatever they wanted to do was my wish, and I think that came from my dad. Mm.
1: When he marched you down there, and you, you had a love for football at that time, he marched you down there and he wanted you to join the Navy. H- how did you feel? Um, not good,
0: I have to say. Not good. Um, it was. One of those things, I left Middlesbrough boys were in a semi-final um, the week before I was going in the Navy. So I knew I had this final coming up when I signed, uh, semi-final coming up when I signed uh, for the Navy. So I was thinking hopefully the semi-final and final uh, of the Middlesbrough boys Uh, will be over but i played the semi-final and then i didn't uh get in touch with dave richardson to tell him i wouldn't be there for the final because i was off to tall point in devon uh well como it's across the water from plymouth um that's where I'm from, Plymouth. Yeah, Plymouth, yeah. So you know it's Colmall and yeah. not Devon. <laughs> yeah. But it's uh, it's a stone's throw. Yeah. And uh, that's where I got my lucky break,
1: yeah. Your lucky break?
0: Yeah, the Navy football team were training there. So uh, I went down um, one day and... Uh, I asked the coach if I could uh, train with him and the team and he went, no, uh, three reasons. One, you're on a trial. So, yeah, what it did, you were on a trial situation whereas uh, you got to six weeks, whether you like the Navy or they like you and if not, you could leave. So he said, come back in six weeks uh, if you want. And the other thing, he said, number two, he said, is you're black. And these lot of kick lumps out of you, so to speak. So, and the third thing is you're too skinny. You're not going to be strong enough to play in the uh, Navy football team. So I said, okay. Anyway, got to six weeks, was fine, uh, was okay, And then uh, there's a six-month period then where you can decide if you want to stay in the Navy or not. So uh, I went back to see him, and he kept saying no, no, no. And then one day I was running around the track while the Navy football team, and he said, look, we're two players short. I'll play on one side, you play on the other. Just stay out on the wing and you'll be fine. So I said, OK. Anyway, uh, I scored two goals from the wing and got drafted straight into the team, straight away. And uh, the rest is history. Uh, we played Portsmouth uh, reserves. uh And um, Navy side, I scored another two goals against them. They asked how old I was and they bought me out for the magnificent sum of 200 pounds. And my dad, um, I I phoned my dad and I told him what was happening. And uh, he wasn't happy, so... uh, I spoke to the Navy and said, look, would you do me a favour? Would you give me a letter saying, if it don't work out as a footballer, I can go back in the Navy? And they said, yeah, fine. So I got that letter, uh, sent it to Dad, and it sort of like made him, you know, a bit more settled. Mm.
1: And then it happens, Your, your career at Portsmouth...
0: Mm-hmm.
1: A lot of people don't um a lot of people will never appreciate, especially in this the modern era, even me, even me as a as a guy that has a, a black black mother and a white father, the what racism was like back in the fifties and sixties. You know, mm-hmm. the first time I experienced racism was maybe nineteen ninety eight. Mm-hmm. No, it would have been later. It would have been about two thousand, roughly. About mm-hmm. when I was maybe eight or nine or ten. Mm -hmm. But when I was reading through what you experienced at that in that time, Mm -hmm. almost constantly, yeah, yeah, I just it's it makes it almost makes my experience feel like it was nothing, Mm -hmm. and I mean that. Like I remember, like once or twice or three times, you know, over the course of my whole childhood, people being overtly racist. But when was the first time someone was racist to you? Uh, Your first uh, memory?
0: I know exactly when it was. I'll never forget it. I was eight years old, once again, that was the time where I could light the fire and go to the shops to get cigarettes. So you went with a note for the shopkeeper. So it was uh, 10 woodbines for my mum and 20 capstan full strength for my dad. So I went to the shop, uh, gave the note to the shopkeeper, uh, and he's getting in. this woman uh, came in the shop. Anyway, she asked for a pint of milk or a loaf of bread. I'm not sure of those details. And uh, he said, I am, I'm serving this young man here. She said, his lot should go back to where they came from. And I thought, I live five doors away from you, you know. Uh, I'm not you know, from somewhere else. And he said, no, look, he stood his ground, the shopkeeper, and served me. And I went out with her ringing in our ears. Oh, them blacks and -and so-and-so's shouldn't be here. Mm -hmm.
1: It says it all that you can remember that day with such detail. Mm
0: -hmm. I can,
1: yeah. Mm. That's something I don't think people realise is, the first time someone called me in the N word at school, I remember everything about that day. Mm. I can't remember many other days, but for mm. some reason, that was a—it's a very traumatic experience, and the first sort of signs that you're different, yeah. unwelcome, mm. um, and that would go on to continue throughout your yeah. ch- childhood, your football career. I read—I read about the story when you were playing against Millwall, I believe it was,
0: mm.
1: and someone had thrown a banana on the pitch at you.
0: Mm. Yeah, no wall was uh, horrific. But not just for me as a black person. It was for any footballer that went there, you know, basically. But even harder for me. I can always remember, uh, once again, if you ask me about my career, and there's, you know, lots I forget. But the first time I took a throw in there, the ball went out, and they kept the ball initially wouldn't give me it. And then eventually it got through onto the pitch and the uh, um, fans are virtually there and you're taking a throwing from there. So I'm sort of like taking this throwing, and all of a sudden spit is on the back of my head. The back of my... Sh- I never took a throwing. in Ever there again? <laughs> <laughs> Let someone else I was taking yeah, that lesson was truly learnt. Yeah, <laughs> mm.
1: and the, the the other story, which I found, it just sounded like something from a thousand years ago, was when you went to the pub after a game with your team, and the the pub owner mm. made a comment, a racist comment to you.
0: Yeah, yeah, that was in Weatherby. I'd played for Portsmouth at Sunderland. Um, in 1976, I think. Sunderland needed to win to get promotion to the, what is the Premier League now, the old first division. We needed a win to stay up in the old second division. Um, what is the championship now? Anyway, Sunderland won that day, um... Always remember that game uh, for two reasons. Not just the Weatherby incident. Uh, I drank champagne for the first time. Uh, Sunderland sent a case of champagne into the dressing room because they'd got promoted that day. Um, so we get on the coach. Uh, every, virtually every team that played Sunderland or Newcastle would stop at Weatherby 4 fish and chip Um, so uh, so we stop so we all pile in the pub uh, most of the players and the barman says we don't serve his kind in here and uh, the lads were all going and I went no 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 it's fine Uh, to be honest I was underage anyway I was 17 Mm -hmm. Um, but That didn't matter back then. I'd been going in the pubs since I was 14, you know. Um, So I went, no, no, it's fine. Anyway, Mickey Mellows, one of my teammates, said, I'll bring you a pint out. But that was the first time that my teammates realised, you know, do you get that often and stuff like that? And I said, yeah, occasionally, you know, but part of life, you know. You get on with it.
1: Mm. It's one thing to, to shrug it off. And I feel like in that situation, there's a time and place, you know, to, um, to address some of these things or to confront them. Your, your father had taught you to kind of not react, as you say. Mm. But as you look back on that period of your life, how did that racial abuse sh- shape and change you as a man? Uh, it made you
0: wary of other people. Obviously, you know, not happy, but I wouldn't say, oh God, it's traumatised me or something like that. And then the black lives come out and people start telling their stories of racism and the way they've been treated. And you think, oh, why can't I tell my story now? And I have done.
1: Has that helped you? Telling your story, do you think?
0: to be honest, I wouldn't say it's helped me or not helped me. I think uh, since I've had this, uh, well, I've got two conditions, an underactive thyroid and uh, apraxia. Uh, The underactive, the thyroid, uh, plays with your emotions. Uh, So I get a lot more emotional now, whereas stuff I wouldn't even batten eyelid in the past because of this little butterfly uh, thyroid in my neck it now makes me more
1: emotional when did you discover the underactive thyroid
0: uh well it's funny you know it's really funny um it's i did going through lockdown initially the first lockdown in march Uh, when the weather was great and everyone, you know, quite, you know, I think they were gutted about the lockdown, but the fact you were at home and the sun was shining, things were slightly different. I did loads and loads of shows from home, you know, Celeb Juice and Steph's Back Lunch, ITV, Lorraine and stuff like that, Sky Sports from the, you know... Uh, Barn at home, you know, so that was fine. So uh, all of a sudden I began to not feel well, um, too well, but I always shrugged it off. I'd take, you know, tablets and be fine the next day and all that sort of stuff, but it wasn't going away. And uh, I thought, what's going on? But I ignored it ignored it which is the worst thing you can possibly do so I would get away with it at home by hardly not being the person I was you know, not talking as much when I'm broadcasting for Sky I'm trying to keep minimalistic because some of the words are coming out slurred and stuff like that so uh, eventually um I've got to go and see someone because I literally went a whole year, if not 20 months before I actually got diagnosed with underactive thyroid. So it was all my prayers answered at once. Uh, You know, uh, you've got an underactive thyroid, take Level of thyroxine. Once you find your level of level of thyroxine, you'll be fine. Great. Doctors, great. Uh, sorting out. So eventually you take 25 grams or whatever it is of level thyroxin. Uh, eventually, when you find your level, you're fine. So I get to 175 and my thyroid is stabilized. Bull. My voice condition is still exactly the same, so what's going on? So my doctor then says, go for a brain scan. So I go for an MRI scan anyway. Go and see a brain specialist. He looks at the x-rays, the MRI scan. Fine, not a problem, nothing wrong with your brain. It's got to be something else that's going on. So uh, uh go back to my GP and tell him what's going on. He's got the report from the brain scan. So he says he, he won't give up my GP. He says, it's not obviously your uh, thyroid. There's something else going on. Would you go and see this Dr. Lilly in Leeds? He's a specialist. So I go and see Dr. Lilly in Leeds, Uh, and before uh, I've only said hello to him, uh, and before I can even chat to him, he says, you've got apraxia of speech, right? How do you know? I can tell straight away the difficulty between the brain and your mouth being able to speak. You know, it was probably slower than it is now uh, at that time. So he said a lot. You know, I want you to go and have a DAT scan, which is which rules out Parkinson's or stroke and all that sort of stuff. I did. Uh, went back to see him with the result for the results, I should say, and he went. Uh, the good news is uh, you haven't got. Parkinson's or anything like that, the bad news is, you know, we can't find anything else wrong with you. So, you know, the apraxia, you know, will probably get worse. And, uh, and you know, uh, that went on for quite a while. Uh, I went to see a therapist and he kept, saying to me, look, you need to tell people, you know, you can't continue on TV and people are saying, is he drunk and what's the matter with him? Has he had a stroke? You need to come out and say something. I said, I can't, I can't. I'd rather quit than actually say something. Uh, Anyway, eventually I uh, spoke to my mate, Men Shepherd uh told him what was going on. So he said, Look, come on uh GMB, uh we'll chat about it and let the world know uh, what's going on.
1: How how were things for your your family during this period? Um <laughs>
0: My boys had been saying to my wife, there's something wrong with Dad uh, for a while. And she sort of, like, would broach it with me, but I'd be quite snappy, and you know, which I'm not anyway, you know. And saying, no, I'm fine, I'm fine, don't worry about it, I'm fine. And I kept thinking, like I said, once I got the thyroid problem, the love or tie rock or will take it away, uh, and then um, it's still with, with me. And uh, yeah, it, it's harder for people close to I think. You know, because my two boys are saying, "Oh, are you're okay." Say, oh yeah, I'm fine. i have just had a bad day. You know, don't worry, I'll be fine. Uh, But they know, you know, you can't pull the over their eyes for too long.
1: For someone that has never experienced what it's like to have apraxia, Mm -hmm. what does it feel like for you in your head?
0: Uh, It feels like someone is taking over my voice box. So the voice that used to come out, would come out at 300 mile an hour, you know. You've seen me on the results and uh, Soccer Saturday, you know, motor mouth, talking, uh, not even waiting for a breath, just keep going and going. Now when I hear myself or see myself on TV, it's someone else, it's strange, it's really strange. Some days, you know the message from the brain to the mouth is really slow. Yeah, makes it difficult. Or some days the words come out different than what you're trying to say, and you know? that's even weirder. Uh, and so that's been hard to accept, and still hard to accept. I have to say, you know, I, I was gonna quit everything. You know, literally every single bit of TV at the end of last season. Leave Sky, uh, quit BBC, quit ITV, quit Channel 4 and 5 and all those companies, uh, BBC, I think it was the right time to leave Sky. Uh, I'd had a great innings, but BBC, ITV, Channel 4 and Channel 5 said, no, no, you're coming. It doesn't matter. You know, I said, Well it's the quality of the programme. No, it doesn't matter. You you're fine, we want you to do this. And would you believe I'm now doubly busy than what I was before.
1: That that period of um uncertainty, you get the diagnosis, the specialist says to you it's only gonna get worse. Mm. Your career is at that point in speaking. Mm. It's in presenting, broadcasting. Yeah. What what was that period of uncertainty like on your mental health? Um, It was uh, an acceptance, really, because
0: what I said to my wife is, if I wasn't a broadcaster, it wouldn't matter, would it? And so she said, yeah. You know, so I said, you know, now's the time. I've had a great time. I spoke to my agent, Simon Dent. Said, said, look, I'm getting out of all this. And he said, yeah, you can. Yeah, don't worry. I'll leave it up to you. And, uh, yeah, I thought, that's it. Quit, I've done my time. And I'd like to thank all the... People that have been persistent and said, look, a 25% Kami is, you know, still better than some people, you know?
1: And Sky, saw you on that show forever. Um, Yeah. Presenting and bringing, you know, insights and wisdom and laughs and um, all of that to the show. I also watched the tribute um, that Jeff Jeff did f- when you left. Mm-hmm. What was that like having to to speak to to Jeff and, and the rest of the lads and tell them yeah. that you were departing and for the reason? Uh,
0: well, Jeff's a really close pal. And he knew there'd been something going on for a while. He kept saying to me, are you all right? And I said, yeah, I'm fine, Jeff. Don't worry, I'm fine. And he said, well, you know... Yeah, what's going on? So I said, no, oh, I just had a couple of bad days and stuff, but I'll be fine on Saturday. And then he'd send me a text say, you're not fine again. And I said, oh, I'll be all right next week or whatever. But yeah, you can't pull the wool over people's eyes who know you real well. And he uh, was great. You know, the tribute that Sky gave me Which, uh, like I said, was the right time to leave there. Uh, I cried when he cried on the show.
1: Mm. I've never seen him cry before. Mm. It was a really um, Mm. beautiful, powerful moment. Um, Since then, you've, uh, in your own words, you've really thrown the kitchen sink, I think is the quote, Mm. at at um, the apraxia and, and can you talk to me about what you've done since to, to um, mitigate the impact of the um, condition on you and your life and your career
0: yeah the, um, the day I went on uh, GMB and spoke to Ben Shepherd um, and Kate um, the, I got a phone call immediately from a fella that I knew-ish, a fella called Winford Dawes. And uh, he said, uh, I can cure you, you know. I know there's people out there that'll help uh, to get you right. So he said, uh, I want you to come and meet uh, Professor Nicholson down at Sheffield University. So I said, OK. So I met Winford and the professor, anyway, between them. They were saying, you need to kickstart your cerebellum, which is in the back of the brain. Uh, what's happened is uh, it's shut down. So we need to get the jump leads out, start it again and get your brain going uh, get your speech going and uh, there are various ways to do that uh, um, so uh, so I said yeah what are those I'll do absolutely anything here to try and get it right so he uh, got um, Zing Performance which is really uh Exercises for stroke victims, but it's helped my balance. Arc uh, performance, which is micro currents going through my body, I still. I have a tag on my ankle now with those micro currents going through all the time. Yeah, all the time. Yeah, uh, for seven hours every day,
1: um, and it's helped.
0: Yeah it's helped, you know, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm more than 60% the old me, but, you know, I was 20%, you know, so I've gone up 40% for a uh, hyperbaric uh, tent, you know, with the oxygen, he recommended I do that, and I see a therapist uh, who helps with the speech, and my anxiety. Working for Sky um, became very difficult, you know. Before I uh, even yeah, came out and said, I've got it, my heart would beat like mad before they came to me at Sky. <sighs> oh, the anxiety was terrible because I was knowing I wasn't the old me. So I went to see him and he said, look, I can cure that. The other problem, the apraxia, is a biological condition, so I can't help with that, but we'll try, you know, and see if we can get you through things. So getting rid of the anxiety helped me finish work or the... Work I had stacked up. UK Strongest Man, The Games, right, TV, uh, all those shows, Cash in the Attic, I present. Um, so they helped me do that. Um, and uh, all those um, treatments, you know, I'm taking so many vitamins these days and uh, I've just been introduced by Winford uh, to uh, the... Uh, best neurologist neurologist in America and he said because I have good days there's no reason why I can't be cured so I've sent off a load of blood tests and everything to America and I'm just waiting on the results
1: How How is life for you now? You've been through a journey. Yeah, strange. You know, where are you in, in that journey now?
0: Strange, uh, strange in terms of I feel a fraud now in terms of broadcasting. I don't bring to the table what I used to. Uh, so that's hard. Uh, my life away from the screen couldn't be any better. You know, grandkids... You know, family, uh, it's, it, you know, it's perfect, unique, yeah. You feel a fraud? Yeah. Mm. mm.
1: Because you, because you...
0: I feel I'm doing these programmes and, and they're not getting the best of me, but they're tolerating me, you know. Mm. That's how it feels, mm.
1: I mean, who am I to say? But um, you know, I I think what you what they told you about, as you said, twenty five percent of you is better than pretty much everyone else. Mm. You know, I've you, you brought so much joy to my life growing up. You made me love the game more. Made me understand the game more. You've made it hilarious. I mean, you know that you're you're loved more than anyone I've ever seen on the screen. So, and you've earned that. That's a skill. That's something I couldn't do. Mm. I wouldn't know how to do a, a slither of what you do. So. I don't think that, um, I suspect that fear is is not as logical as you think it is. Mm. That you're a fraud. I mean that as well. Like, I could never do what you do. I couldn't do 10% of what you do. Mm. So, um, you know.
0: It's like anything else. You take it for granted, your old self. You do things, you know, uh, that tribute that Sky gave me. That's reserved for someone who passes away, isn't it? You know, so I've had the tribute while I'm still alive uh, that people don't get when they go. uh, You always look back and think, you read the obituaries and the comments and think, why didn't people say that? You know, so I think maybe I should have bowed out then, you know. And um, taking the accolades and said, thank you. You know, am I tarnishing what I've got, what I had? Mm.
1: But I but I think um, my rebuttal to that, if I may, is that you're, you're serving the world in a very important way now still. Even by having this conversation and being vulnerable and open, you are serving hundreds of thousands of people, thousands and thousands of people, in a complete and entirely different way that are suffering mm. with with various conditions, whether it's, you know, as you've said, post-stroke victims or whether it's apraxia or other things and they're struggling with the same self-doubt. It's funny, like our missions just change over our lives, right? Like, so your first missions was in football and then you became a manager, then you did broadcasting and now this chapter of your life is just a different chapter.
0: Mm.
1: You're still, you know, a wondrous... Broadcaster, but you're serving people in a completely other way, probably, maybe, arguably, even in a more important way. Mm. See what I mean?
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, I do. yeah. It's funny. I did the
0: ITV games, and a YouTuber was called Young Philly. I'd never met him before, but he's on the first show. And he sees me before we go broadcasting, and he comes. And he starts doing that. He went, "You're a god." And I went, "What? You know, I'm young, Philly. Pleased to meet you. Oh, do you know what an icon you are for black people?" And I went, "No, nah, don't be daft." He went, "You're you're a trailblazer. You know, you did TV before diversity. You know, how did you?" get into TV when you, you know, on Sky Sports and there was no black people around and all that sort of stuff. You're an an icon. And I went, no, I don't see myself as that. And he went, well, you've been my inspiration. So makes it feel good for a second.
1: That's worth it, right? Yeah. Mm. And that alone, that, that thought that you're inspiring people just by having this conversation and by sharing your story and being honest and not running into the shadows as you could have mm. very easily done mm. is going to help that. And you probably never get to meet them. Like you got to meet young Philly, mm. but that's got to be worth it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It was, I didn't believe him, but yeah, it was <laughs> nice. he's got no reason to lie though. is yeah. Do you know what I mean? This You are always one decision away from taking your business to the next level.
0: My life has changed uh, in terms of grandkids. You know, material things don't matter anymore. Um, uh, the love you are for, you know, your kids' kids uh, is something else. So, you know, I'm one of those now, even though I'm still working my main priority is spending
1: time with them. What advice would you give me? You know, I just turned 30 yeah. last week. What advice uh, would you give me? On- I
0: say it to everyone work hard and you'll succeed. Don't ever turn down work. Don't ever say on a job or oh, this is hard. I- Don't like it anymore. I can't do this. Do it. Do it and do it to the best of your ability and see where it takes you. You know, TV is one of those jobs, I think, where if you work hard enough, you'll succeed. In football, that's not the case. You know, I've grown up in football and you sometimes, a lucky break is better than working hard. Even, you've still got to work hard, but you need breaks. And of course you need breaks in TV, but if you work hard, I think you get them. I started off at Sky, and so uh, people say, how did you get into Sky in 1998? Well, initially uh, I was a pundit forum. Um, I was lucky, fortunate. The first broadcast of the uh, Football League was Sunderland versus Sheffield United at Sheffield and they rang me. I was manager of the month with Bradford. uh, uh, August, we won four games and drew one and they called me and said, would you come and be the pundit? So I said, Yeah, Sheffield down the road from me and he said, No, you've got to come into Sky, uh, in West London. So I came all the way down. Marcus Buckland, the presenter, was his first day and it was a double header. Six hours of T V, obviously ads in between and all that sort of stuff, half time, uh and that. And Jerry Francis was doing the second game, so that's where fate took a hand. Uh, I did the first game; Sunderland won at Sheffield, and Jerry Francis got stuck on the M4, so I did the double header. Mm-hmm. So, from doing six hours of TV, I became the go-to guy then for Sky. So, a live game: Are you available? Uh, yeah, I'll come down and do it, and I did that. And then when I got the sack from Bradford, they asked, would I like a contract? And I said no, but I'd like to keep my face in the shop window. So I did one broadcast, and then Stoke came along, uh, and I got that job. And then that job turned sour pretty quickly after three months. And uh, then I just fell straight into the sky, the broadcasting. And uh, so eventually um, the 1999, um, the producer of Soccer Saturday said, would you like to come and join the team? Uh, so I said, yeah. So he went, would you like to do some features for us? So I would actually go and train with teams, Premier League teams. You know, can you cannot imagine in a million years that they let you and train with the players these days. But I did that back in the day, 1999. So I'd go and train, join in the training with them, interview the managers, the players, shoot the... And then I went and edited those pieces (laughs) because I didn't want someone saying, oh, yeah, it's fine, but, you know, the hard work is done by the editor. So I would sit myself in a studio uh, uh, and sometimes it took six, seven hours for a four-minute piece to edit it down. But I thought, right, I don't want anyone saying he's there by fraud, hard work, uh, and if you do that and people see that, uh, they, uh, it'll help. Not in all
1: cases, but in most cases. That was the very start of what would go on to be a legendary career in the media. Um, mm. I, when you look, so you've given me one reason there as to why you were successful, which is just the hard work and saying yes. Mm. But the media business is also. It's much more complex than that, in the sense that hard work, as you say, is like a, you definitely need to do it. But what was it about you, do you think, that set you apart as of, as a, in the media industry as a broadcaster?
0: I don't know that. I'm still baffled by that. I went to Ian Condren's uh, 40th anniversary with his wife. He was Ian was the producer of Soccer Saturday, who gave me the job and uh, I said why you know I'd seen you on doing other programs punditry and thought you'd be great for our show he said uh, you know took a chance with you and uh, and it works but 20 you know, years yeah. you must you must have a suspicion no no not at all you know I'm. I was allowed to be just me, so I didn't have to work at it like I had to work at editing those pieces together. You know, the training, playing, uh, interviewing the managers all came natural. Yeah, it was that hard work that I wanted to prove that I could do. Um, but no, I was fortunate. Oh, it was just me. Mm.
1: Anne, when did you meet Anne?
0: Uh, We met uh, uh, when I was at Swindon. Uh, I got transferred from uh, Portsmouth to Swindon, my first ever transfer, and uh, in 1978...
1: 1978.
0: Yeah, 1978. And uh, we actually played Portsmouth. My first game uh, for Swindon was at home to Portsmouth. And um, uh, yeah, I had to have a police escort to the game. Um, The uh, club had been informed by the intelligence. That the National Front, because Portsmouth had 200 National Front supporters.
1: National Front is this racist organisation from a couple of decades ago. Yeah,
0: so they'd got wind that they were going to do me in, you know. Um, So, uh, you know, when I played for Pompey, there was a small section of fans that booed you onto the pitch because of your colour, booed you off, you know, but like I said, back in those days, I didn't care, not one job, you know, and I didn't care when they said about this, you know, you're going to be done in. I said, oh, it's just a threat, don't worry about it. But the police intelligence said, no, we need to pick you up and uh, take you to the game and drop you back home. So I did, and... uh, You scored. Went to the yeah after 10 minutes. (laughs) And not like today, uh, where people don't celebrate. Uh, Of course, stupid me, you know, with Dad, this death threat goes straight because I scored in the end where the Pompey fans were. (laughs) And uh, gave it all that. Uh, So... uh, so yeah, no, so uh the police escort wanted to take me back to my dicks, but I said no, leave it now, it's fine. And uh one of my teammates, Kenny Stroud, uh his wife Linda, was with uh this girl called Anne. Uh and uh I asked her out and you know, forty years later or forty-three. Uh, years later, we're still together.
1: What a journey it's been
0: with mm. Anne. A long journey, yeah.
1: What does she mean to you?
0: Uh, everything, you know. It's, you take wives for granted, or I did. You know, I can't speak for everyone else. Um, But it's only when, yeah have a problem like this because you know I just live for today you know I'm fine I'm you know I'm no problems don't worry about me it's all, it's when you have a problem um, they have to you know look at your closest one and see what they do for you and how they react to what you're going through which you know, it's difficult, and then you feel sad about you know not sharing things before and keeping things away from. How did she react to all of this? Um, she she said she thought for a while she didn't say anything. She said she thought uh, for a while that there was something not quite right. But she couldn't put her finger on it. And she's been my rock, you know, now, you know. I don't, I don't hardly, you know, this is the longest I've spoken to anybody for a long time, you know. And you'll probably see when you edit this tape, sometimes it's slow, sometimes it's coming out okay. Now it's coming out okay and it feels fine. You know, and that's all to do with the mind. Maybe I'm talking about a good thing now with the hand, so it's fine and it's free. Uh, So, yeah, she's, you know, she's taking the weight, uh, heavy weight off my shoulders and, you know, allowed me to do what I do, to continue doing what I'm doing if I want to do it. But she does say from time to time, you're allowed to say no to these jobs that Simon rings up and asks me to do. Uh, But I don't like to let anyone down.
1: You know, I think it's it's worth saying that. I think this this has been a really, really great conversation. Um, And... uh, I'm actually quite surprised to hear that of, of how much you struggled previously, based on the, we, the conversation we've had today. Mm-hmm. Because I don't, um, had I, I don't know if I'm speaking out of turn here, but had I not known about the um, the condition, this would have been a perfectly normal conversation on this con- on this podcast. So it's really, really interesting and enlightening to 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 learn more about it, and uh, I. Yeah, I can't imagine, from a family's perspective as well, going through that journey with their father, where you're trying to find answers, you find answers, and then there's that whole sort of therapy process to Mm. get you back to where you are. And the mental health journey that takes us on, which we've not really talked about in detail, but there's the curing the the condition, but then there's like living with the cost of the shift, the tectonic shift in your life. Mm. Um,
0: It consumed your mind or it has done mine so Every day I wake up, the first thing I think, am I going to be able to talk today, you know? So immediately I wake up, I'll go in the bathroom and I'll look in the mirror and say a few words and it's fine or I think it's fine. The perception is fine in my head and then I'll go downstairs and talk to Anne and all of a sudden that pathway is Restricted and uh, oh god, not again today, you know, and that's been hard to get my head around. And my therapist, uh, Daniel, he says, You exaggerate in your mind, you know, that's the problem because you've never had to think about your speech, now you're thinking and you're overthinking. So, even though, like you said. It seems fine to you, in my head, I know that it's slower than it would have been had we spoken
1: three years ago mm. and that the cognition part the thoughts they're they're still the same
0: oh, yeah they're they're lightning quick, yeah, they're fine, so uh uh they're there in terms of speech, but I have days where if you're out and about or even indoors there's nothing in the brain area so you know whereas i could normally go into a room did it all the time speak to everyone have a laugh that was the first thing on my mind now that part of it is hard work and it feels hard work and it feels a struggle and it doesn't feel natural. That's the worst thing. So I tend not to do it very often, you know, unless I'm feeling good. I've, you know, uh, spoken to someone else and I can tell it's fluid, uh, the voice, then I'll go in a room and
1: be myself again. Mm. Chris, we have a closing tradition on this podcast. Yes. Where the um, last guest asks a question for the next guest. They don't know who they're writing it for. Mm-hmm. And they'll never find out. Um, although I have said their name earlier on, so you might be able to figure it out. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the question they've written for you is... I'm going to read it verbatim. What has been the most happiest... Moment of your life. Full stop. Brought you the most joy, and why? Uh, is
0: that kids aside, or let's say kids included? aside? Because that's yeah. yeah, yeah, kids aside. Uh, achieving my ambition and my dream. Yeah, uh, I can, you know, as a young black kid playing on the fields round where I live thinking that one day I'll play at Ayrson Park for Middlesbrough and Ellen Road for Leeds uh, it's blown my mind away you know uh, ambition and dream achieved
1: Chris thank you I, um, I have no doubt that your ambitions and dreams are are just getting started because you have all of the the core, the minerals that are required to achieve pretty much anything. And you've shown that your life has been a testament to that, even in the face of great adversity. Thank you. I thank you not just for myself and for you giving me your time today, but um, I don't think you realize how many people you're going Mm -hmm. to help in a really important, profound way, how much pain you're going to alleviate from them, how you're going to make them feel seen and understood just by doing this today and just by not hiding in the shadows. Thank you. So thank you. And thank you for all the joy you've thank brought you. me. You've made oh, football thanks. fun. You've made it. Um, it made me understand the game better over the course of pretty much my entire life. Um, so I'm, for one, I'm so glad that I still get to see you on the screens mm. and I hope to see you a lot more. I know you've got a show, Ninja Warrior UK, Race for Glory, yeah. um, which is airing on ITV, which I'm very excited about watching as well.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad I did it. You know, I tried to pull out when they rang me and said we've been commissioned for Series 7, I went, oh, no. And they went, what do you mean, oh, no? And I went, oh, no, you're not getting the old coming. They said, oh, don't worry about it. And uh, I've watched a bit of the first episode, and even though it don't sound like me, it's possible, you know. So yeah, I hope people enjoy it.
1: Well, as you said, 25% of you is better than pretty much most (laughs) anyone else. So we'll we'll take that. Thank you so much, Chris. Thanks. Anona.